This podcast is brought to you by Media 8. Welcome to Off the Cuff with Kel, conversations from the front line, a podcast and live show for survivors and the leaders who support them. I'm your host, Kelly Humphreys, a survivor of child sexual abuse, advocate, author, speaker, ambassador, a lover of all things outdoors with over 15 years of law enforcement experience. Please support me in my mission to break cycles of abuse and trauma. You can help by donating to my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Kelly Humphreys. All right, guys. Hello and welcome to Off the Cuff with Kel. I am so excited. We are up to episode number 20 and I have the amazing Jared Bryce from uh, the incredible campaign. Your reference ain't relevant. Welcome, Jared, to Off the Cuff with Kel. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. No, no worries, guys. We're going to have an amazing conversation tonight and I have been uh following uh the campaign not religiously but I've, I've taken more notice lately because i recognize for myself um how much of a <sighs> a big issue this is for me um and how passionately uh i'm i'm i really believe in what you guys are doing but um we're going to talk about some tough stuff tonight and so guys if you are listening um, please be advised that some of the content that we will talk about will possibly be triggering for you. We will talk about child sexual abuse themes. Um, so if you do need support, please head to my website. There are support numbers there at kellyhumphreys.com. So, Jared, I'm so excited. I'm uh, a little bit um, bummed that Harry couldn't join us tonight, but I know um, you guys are working so hard all across Australia to share your message um, and your campaign, and it must be just exhausting. So I'm so appreciative that you can join me tonight, um, especially for this live chat that people can, you know, get amongst and, you know, ask some questions and stuff. So yeah, absolutely, and we're we're bummed to Harry can't be here as well, but he's just spent three days at a conference in Tasmania, um, and one of the things I think we're both learning the more we are in this arena is just how much we need to take into account um, our self care as well. So, yeah, hundred percent wasn't something that was wise for him to do tonight. No, it, and look, you guys are doing such a great job. Um, I would love, and, and look, you both have such powerful stories um, and, and hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get to have Harry on again at some point so we can have you both. Um, but Jared, you are an awesome leader and advocate in your own right. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge you and your work and your service uh, and your story. So thank you for being so passionate and powerful um, with what you're doing. I, I recognize how difficult it is, firstly, to share as a survivor myself, um, but particularly as a male. Um, I, I, I think you'd be a role model for so many men out there who just uh, haven't had the courage to share their story just yet. So. Yeah, uh, look, I think, um... You know, I, I appreciate that. I find it hard to sit there and take compliments. When I think that's one of the things about being a survivor. A lot of us don't really know how to um, take it when someone says something good to us. But I'm I'm getting a lot better at saying thanks <laughs> and um, yeah. flying away from a compliment. So I really appreciate um, the call out there and and the support and encouragement. It's it's great. I think particularly as a male, I mean, I work uh, part time uh, when I'm not architecting, which is not a word. Um, right, you can make up your own words on here. It's fine. <laughs> Um, with SAMHSA, which is a support network for male survivors. And, you know, 
the sharing of your story is so important. And I know for me who, you know, shared my story at 17, um, initially not deliberately, and we can go into that if you want, but, um, you know, it, it kind of came out and then, and then I was encouraged after it came out um, without me knowing it was coming, um, you know, with the assistance of some alcohol. Um, then I sort of told my parents and uh, went from there. But right from 17 and then particularly sort of when I was 21 and I shifted to a new counsellor, um, I, I was made aware, particularly by her, just how young I was in terms of talking about it. And I actually, you know, I went went along to a Samson eight-week group at age 35. And I was one of the youngest in the group. The next person above me was five years older. And above him, I reckon, would have been 10, 10 years older than him. And uh, it really hit home to me. I, that was the first time. So I would sort of told my story at 17 to my parents, my family at least, and then increasingly other people. But that was the first time I'd ever sat with other survivors and to see how much younger I was, was a, even though I'd heard that was the case, was a real shock. And I think, um, you know, so in so many ways in this world, women are worse off than men. Um, and you, you know, you're more likely to be victims of abuse, of domestic abuse, of childhood abuse, of all things. But when it comes to dealing with emotional things and talking out loud, I think women also have much better networks, uh, much better at friendship and much better at knowing how to engage with their emotions and i i see, i sort of see the evidence of that in the work i do with with men and i'm, I'm fortunate i grew up with a father who um though he's very british um also you know really knew how to talk about stuff and really knew how to show emotion and and so i had a, a pretty good example of of how to approach talking about my stuff which made it easy not easy but easier yeah yeah oh that's good that you at least had some great role models there um i i definitely agree um from my experience as well that men do definitely struggle to talk more uh about this so you're really setting uh, a precedent here for many others to follow um but i do also believe that uh men's abuse is extremely underreported and i think there's some new research that's come out that highlights that men are almost on par with women with the amount of child sexual abuse that they experience. So um, the Australian Child Maltreatment Study says one in six or one in five and girls is one in three. So um, it's it's more prolific than we think. And I think a lot of men don't acknowledge abuse as abuse um, and potentially normalise it as like a rite of passage, perhaps if they're, you know, not quite of age and still a little bit underage, but they're trying to be the man. And, you know, it's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stigma around that. So, um, you, you, in, in your advocacy and what you're doing, I, I, I can see how powerful that is to break open that and give men permission to have a voice. So I, I just think that's fantastic. So I, I would love, like, I know you've just touched a little bit on your story, but did you want to share anything else about your experience, uh, with our listeners? And then I'd love to talk about the campaign. Yeah, and I guess you know um, the campaign's born out of my story, so I'm I'm happy to to share about that. Um, and I really value the sharing of stories. And we, we, Harry and I often talk about with other survivors who are in the public eye, or the somewhat public eye, 
um, that, you know, it's really important to know that if you share your story, that doesn't mean share doing what we're doing. It doesn't mean doing what you're doing. It doesn't mean um, a public sharing of your story. But um, when we talk about sharing your story, that's sharing it with someone, someone and, and the important people and the people who can help you. Um, and then some people share more, more broadly, but I think we're called to do that. But if I go back to what I referenced when I was about when I was 16, so for me, sorry, beg your pardon there. <laughs> I, I'd never, I think I'd suppressed emotionally what happened to me, the dealing with it, but I'd, I'd never actually forgotten what happened. Um, and I was younger than 10 years old. Uh, it was my neighbor and he made me feel like I was complicit, which is, you know, common and made me feel like I would get in trouble. So whilst it was going on, I was concealing it and, uh, and then fearing that if my parents found out that I would, I would get in trouble. And so, uh, it was a very effective way for him to keep me silent, especially because I was a pretty good kid. I'm the oldest boy of three children. I'm, you know, responsibility is something I think I flourish with. You give me responsibility and I'll, I'll, I'll take it and run with it. And so, and I was like that at a young age as well. And so the idea of getting in trouble really kept me, kept me quiet. Um, it was a pretty effective, you know, hip. I don't, I don't, I'm sure he was that manipulative and, but I think that's a, a fairly general approach from predators, but uh, mm. it wouldn't have worked better with me. Though in the end it backfired on him because I did start avoiding. So he was my neighbor over the rear fence um, or the son of my neighbor, I should say, over the rear fence, but he was of age or close to it. And um, I did start sort of avoiding the backyard a little bit. And he came out one day out into the street miles from either of our houses where, you know, the kids our age were hanging out uh, in the bush where we always did. And he tried something there and actually i was so conscious of people might see i might get in trouble that for the first time i didn't go along with it i i refused and sort of backed away and and was able to get away from him and like most well not not most i probably don't know enough to say that but a lot of predators i think what people don't realize a lot of abuse of children isn't violent it's manipulative right. and coercive and so often when a child actually does refuse uh, in a in a safer situation, the the abuser backs off because their their way of engaging has been coercive and manipulative and making the child think that they they like them and that they're friends. And so, it, I know that's not always the case. Um, I'm not saying by any means, but it was certainly the case with us. And so, um, he didn't you know, react in a way that was violent or forceful. He, he backed off and went away. And I guess in some senses, he'd shot himself in the foot by making me think I'd get in trouble. And he didn't realize that, but you know, it, it meant that I refused when, when he tried it on in public. Um, and, you know, memory, especially with trauma, memory is such a fluid thing. It can be hard to nail things down, but I, for me, I feel like that was the last time it happened. Uh, and we did, yeah. we did move away when I was 10 years old as well. And so, um, then I was thankfully without anyone knowing, uh, removed from the dangerous situation, which is, a, which is very, very fortunate, but 
I um I guess I kept that inside and I tried to maintain a facade of everything being okay. And I think sometimes, you know, at least in my experience, when you're a kid and you're taken away from the bad thing, things can be okay for a little while. Um, and, but as I started sort of entering my teen years, I started to feel more, you know, disgruntled and more upset and wonder what was going on. And around the same time, I started to see in the early nineties, um, child abuse stuff on the news. And I don't think it had ever been on the news before. I was talking about this on Saturday. I, I think it's really when it started cropping up. I think I would have noticed even at younger than 10, you know, dad always had the ABC news on and I would have clicked if that was being talked about because I did, I sort of clicked. And I remember seeing these stories and thinking, hang on a second, there's something going on here that I need to like, that yeah, yeah. is talking to me. And yeah. that was really how I learned I was the victim. Um, that that I wasn't complicit, and that that you know, and I, and then and I think that sat with me. Like I realized that I hadn't agreed to it. I just got along with it because that's I, I didn't have a choice. I was sort of an an adult was telling me to do. Uh, and so that sat for the next few years. And I think you know, on a personal, very inside level i was getting increasingly un unsettled and upset but i wasn't even connected with that myself so whilst i knew and i'd never forgotten what happened to me i wasn't connected to the effect that it was having on me or really conscious of it and it was i think one thing i'll say about my experience of trauma at least is that it's taken and even still to this day when something bad happens to me it often takes a long time to distill like i i, I process for for a long, long time. Um, and maybe it is that disconnection from emotion and and disconnection from bad things happening. But when I first started drinking, uh, and you know, I was had a, had a gr great group of friends that I'd grown up, like spent the last few years with. Um, and, you know, a couple of them were 17, 18, I was 16. There was a sort of group of five of us that were pretty close, we'd hang around. Actually, three three were my age and two were the older siblings. So, um, and we went to this party in a local area and we had grog. And it was the first time I'd really, I think we'd tried a few sips and my parents were never the type, you know, they'd been letting me have a little sip here and there for years, um, but obviously carefully and, you know, not my own, my own drink. And I'd never seen them drunk. They're not, that's not their, it's not their shtick. So, I wasn't naive about alcohol, but I didn't really know the effects it would have on me. And I, I just drank and kept up with everybody there at the party. And at some point in the night, I left the party um, and started running in front of cars. And, you know, being drunk, I have only the vaguest recollections of it, really. But I do remember it was deliberate. And I recognize that I'm very fortunate that we're really in quiet suburban back streets. So it wasn't a main road, you know, they would have had to, I would have had to work pretty hard to get one of them to hit me. You know, I think they could see there was a party happening, but for my friends, um, it was a big surprise and they ended up having to chase me around. And, you know, at, at some point they caught me and held me down or pulled me down in a gutter. And then I just collapsed in a heap of tears and told, told them what was going on. And I don't, 
I know I know one of them was there and I don't really know if the others were or not, if they went away when I started talking or or what. But my best mate at the time, he just, you know, held on while I cried and told him what had happened. Um, and I guess that's a fairly shocking way for things to come out, but um, also I think that's what it took. I, I wasn't about to tell anybody because the shame, the shame that I carried, um, and I can talk about it now with a fairly level um, level of emotion, but the shame that I carried was huge and still is something that I fight, is that the shame and, you know, and the guilt, the un I mean, I don't need to feel guilty, but it, it sometimes still crops up. And so I don't think, I don't know if I actually would have spoken with that without that aid. You know, like I, I might've been one of the people who, who waited 30 years. I really don't know, but um, I am a kind of wear my heart on my sleeve kind of person. So I think the alcohol brought that out <laughs> and that, yeah. I'm really fortunate in that. And it's, it's one of those interesting things where, you know, good can come out of all sorts of things and i was like i wouldn't encourage teenagers to go and get drunk right um especially you know without safety th things in place but at the same time i i'm kind of grateful that i did that i'm really grateful that i did that um because i don't i don't actually know if if it if it would have come out if i would have told anybody if i would have um let let it surface um mm. i don't actively suppressing but I was suppressing it. And, you know, I was also very fortunate that that group of friends had the same network of adults around them as I did. And so they didn't sort of force me to tell my parents, but they did encourage me to tell some other people that we knew that were friends of our families. And then they, they encouraged me to tell my parents. And I, I told my dad and he told my mum, which I think was hurtful to her, but it's what I could deal with at the time. Um, and, you know, we, we've had to work through some of that since then. And some yeah. Others, yeah. It sounds like you're a great communicator though, Jared, and uh, you know, you've got the right people around you. And I think for many of us, we don't have always have that person. We can fall into a heap and, mm. and just let yeah. go. And uh, I know for men, that's really difficult to just let go and fall in a heap, but I, I think it's very brave. I really, really do. And uh, I think we need to hear that more. Men need to hear that more uh, and to have the courage to share openly and not be afraid of their emotions because they're like, you know, don't want to, you know, fall apart like that because there's this whole image that you need to hold yourself together all the time. Um, yeah. And that's just not true. Like it, it doesn't serve you, you know? Absolutely. And uh, look, I'm not immune from that. I, I still do naturally try and project like everything's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it comes very naturally to me, but I think um, more and more I I do have the ability to to let go, and I I think the more I've spoken up and the more I've been honest, the more I my emotion has shown through. You know, so yeah. I, I I've got so many things like that you've touched on that I want to talk about, um, but I just want to mention one thing really quickly, and uh, it was about complicit being complicit and I think that's really important because so many uh, victim survivors who have an experience where somebody uh, particularly if they're known to the victim child there's this whole um, 
and you you said it perfectly when you said it. I can't I don't, I don't think I can requote you now but um you, you know it's it's such a big reason that survivors don't speak up and I, I really appreciate you sharing that because uh I think it's a good opportunity to remind everybody that no child can ever give consent um you are never complicit in abuse um and you can't be forced as a child to make those decisions that only you can make as an adult like it's 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 just not children just are not designed to make those decisions about their body at that age yeah. so you know forgive yourself if you're out there listening um if you feel at any point in time that you um were complicit or you know made to be a part of it or something like that and it was it's it was your fault it's not your fault and it never was your fault and so forgive yourself for what you had to do to survive yeah i think that's really what i want to say um so thank you for highlighting that jared um tell us a little bit about how from your story and and what's happened um in in your lived experience has led into this campaign about your reference ain't relevant yeah well like i said i think i was aware from a young age that i was uh, ahead of the curve in terms of talking about it um and in my 20s i actually went to the police and i went through a court case um which was a cathartic experience for me and again i i um i've had i think a really I don't, I don't want to say positive experience, but I'm going to use the word positive for one of a better descriptor. In in so many aspects where I hear other survivors talking about such negative experiences, I've had very positive experiences. So yeah. I went to the police, I was believed, um, you know, and maybe it's the moment I was in, you know, maybe I'm the right age that I kind of hit some of the the right streams and people older than me didn't, but I know people younger than me have been through horrible experiences, but the, the detective, um, who I, I wish I could say his name. I won't, I don't, I don't know if he'd want me to, I don't know if he's still working, but he was great. There, you know, there was, two, there were two detectives I dealt with originally, but then one who was the one who took all my statements over a, a fair amount of time and who was kind of the lead on my case. And cause it was a historic case. It took five years to get from my first report to the courtroom. And I was so supported by that, you know, I wouldn't say I was supported by the police because I wasn't, um, there were no support services or anything there mm. that I, that I was told about or knew to access, but I was supported by that man, um, that detective who worked in the, you know, the child abuse crime squad. Um, he, and he was just so brilliant. And so I had this, this good experience with him, um, and eventually we got to the point where it was almost at court. And then, um, you know, we had a really good, I had really positive experience with the, the, the that process of, of sort of getting over the last little leak to getting it to court as well. And so for me, though, we didn't get the result I want, I wanted, and I wouldn't do it again. The court, actually the week in court was not easy at all. Um, it was still quite a cathartic experience for me on the whole. And the one thing it did do was I, um, I walked out of the courtroom on the last day after the hung jury and we'd been hiding in this little side room, um, all, all, all week because they would mill around outside and we'd hide in the side room. And 
I, I sat down on this chair. We left the courtroom first. His um, new wife, he um, just got engaged when he was arrested. Uh, his new wife sort of stood up and told me to go to hell um, as I left the courtroom, like yelled at me and my auntie like yelled back, which was great. <laughs> um, I didn't see it happening. I heard about it. I was out of there. Um, oh, dear. But, um, but she really, you know, stood up for me and she's a formidable woman. Um, but uh, we sat outside and then they came out of the courtroom and I was, I remember sitting on this bench at the opposite end, you know, 50 meters away, there was two courtrooms and we were at either end. And I just looked at him and my mum said, Oh, do you want to go in the little room? Are you okay? And I think that they probably felt like they needed to, they would have been in shell shock still. But for me, there'd been some kind of transfer of power to me. I'd taken my power back. I'd held him accountable. I knew that his family knew and his guilt was evident. You know, he tried to blame his father. He tried to blame his brother. Um, I, I don't know what innocent person would be like, oh, I'm innocent. I'll pin it on my dad. Um, you know, I think an innocent person, an innocent person stands on their innocence. Right. Uh, but, you know, it, it was a, it was a shit show in there and he pointed fingers everywhere. Um, they tried to blame, you know, my dad's workmate who looked after me for three weeks when my parents were overseas because he also had a garage. I'm like, I know the difference between a, an old man with a beard and this guy, you know, I, who had a wife and a daughter, not that those people don't abuse, but like, I, I, I know who did it, you know, and I was looking at him. And I remembered him. I, I hadn't seen him since, you know, I was 10 years old, but I, I had no doubt looking him in the face. I, I, it was amazing how I could recognize him. And he would, you know, he'd aged 17 years, but I, I, I knew who it was. And, um, and in the end they went into the little room up there and because I refused to budge, I just stared them down. Um, and love it. I love it. Yeah. It, so that put me in a position where I did feel like I needed to do more. I didn't really know what, and it wasn't until another, you know, I slowly started telling people I knew, uh, and my, I guess my circle of support grew. Um, and, um, I'd had, you know, when I was 19, I'd had a, a serious attempted at suicide, but then when I realized that perhaps it was going to work, I'd taken myself off to hospital and I'd, um, you know, I hadn't told my parents about that, but they found out, um, which I think is good. Uh, but they never talked to me about it until I was ready. Um, and I felt like they must've spent some years kind of waiting, hoping and wor worrying that it was going to happen again. And, um, but I think they were, I think they were wise in not speaking to me about it. And that might like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, I think you could go with your gut with me, they would have gone with their gut and they knew that I was having counseling. They knew I had support and they knew that I'd told people about it. So, um, I think that was enough for them, but, um, it wasn't until I went to that Samson eight week group and sat with those other survivors that I had the tools after that, I realized to do something and to be more public, to actually take a stand. And I guess at the time, and it still is probably the thing I value most with survivor survivors is I just knew how important telling my story was because I'd never had anyone ahead of me. I'd never seen somebody share their story. I'd seen things in the news, but I'd, I'd never seen a guy ahead of me. And I was like, I want to be that person who can be ahead for somebody. 
I want I want to share that story. And so there's actually an organization called Polished Man, which raises funds. Um, and I spoke to them and said I could be an ambassador. And I offered and they said, great. Um, and I went public um, on my Facebook page and Instagram at the time. And it, it did, it blew up. It, um, I was one of the top 10 fundraisers in that year. I spoke at the opening night the following year shared my story, uh, which was really empowering for me. And I think, you know, really positive for them and, and things grew. And I, and I think it's been for me, the lead up to the, your reference ain't relevant has been a slow burn. You know, I, I, I did a very tough degree at uni. I studied architecture, which is one of the hardest, which when you're going through what I was going through in my twenties provided some interesting times for my psychologist. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I've, I've been building a career, um, but from about the age of 35, I've, I've also been building this advocacy. I guess you'd call it, I don't know if you call it a career, but I've been building in my advocacy. Um, and so I did Polish Man and that was, I would sort of dip into that. Each year I would come and I would do Polish Man and it would take a lot out of me. And then I would sort of put the lid back in the box and put it on the shelf. Um, but slowly other opportunities came up and oh, I don't know how long ago it was now. It would have been early 2022. It must have been that I met Harry. Um, and I saw him share his story on Instagram. And I just texted straight away because he was, I think, 21. I, like, and I was amazed because I, I wished I'd spoken up at that age and mm. I wish, um, had the bravery to do so. Um, and also a lot of, a lot of what I was doing was because it wasn't, I guess in some ways for the survivors ahead of me, it, it was, but it was for all survivors, but I was doing it because I wanted people to speak out when I spoke out. I wanted, I wanted people to tell their family at 17. I, I want, I want kids, you know, I kind of, uh, well, I wanted to, to hope that by speaking out, there might be like a 13 year old boy who like around the age when I started really realizing what had happened to me, who, who might somehow see my story and would actually talk at 13 because there's just yeah. so much more you can do. I think when you break the cycle close to the time that something's happened. hundred percent, mate. I and because you, with that. yeah, you, you catch a child at 13 and you, you tell them it's not your fault. You don't have to carry shame and guilt and they don't carry that through their formative years, or at least they're getting counseling and they're working through that, you know? And so seeing Harry speak for me was just really exciting. And I messaged him, I, you know, he had, he'd blown up on Instagram. I never expected to get a response, uh, Harry, but he's a pretty like in tune and down to earth guy. Yeah. And Bonded, and then we we just hit it off, you know. And he's almost half my age at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah. He won't, you know. Ten years time will be a lot closer, weirdly. But um, <laughs> yeah, we, we eventually got to the point where we, you know, we met up for a drink, um, and we just talked nonstop for hours. And um, you know, I think we we hit it off, and eventually. In the, I think it was about May this year, we launched the Your Reference Ain't Relevant campaign. But that 
was off the back of a few conversations at the pub. Um, and Harry being the go-getter that he is, he, you know, um, we had one conversation about it. And the next time we spoke, he's like, well, I've spoken to a lawyer and I've, I've sussed this out and I've done that. And I think this, and I was like, Whoa, um, right. And I had to make a decision. Um, yeah. And we, we sort of, I guess, formed then. And, and that's kind of how I met him and how Europe and Zane Relevant started. Um, mm. and a really great experience, but also very intense. So I went from sort of dipping in and out every year and doing the occasional engagement, speaking engagement. I'd done a, a podcast with Samson by that point, and they were talking about the peer support line, which I work on now, but it hadn't happened yet. Um, and actually, you know, the, the peer support line um, started late, late 2022. Um, and so I guess over 2020, uh, to 23, I've, I've gone from being a once a year advocate, you know, once a year plus to, um, to day to day constantly being in it. And, you know, once the campaign started, um, it wasn't going to stop. So it's been a ride. It's been a real ride. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I, I totally resonate with you because I, like you, I work and then I, do my advocacy work so I know how tough it is um but I guess like the actual campaign itself Hmm. is about the the good character that is insinuated in court and it's about taking the ability for those perpetrators to be able to represent themselves as good characters is that right can you just explain yeah yeah so um, yeah. currently in the court system in New South Wales and um, and federally, um, so sexual abuse is dealt with, like, aside from, I think, you know, internet or overseas cases, sexual abuse is largely dealt, is dealt with by the states. So if you get caught, you'll, you'll go through the court system, the state court system, not the federal court system, federal abuse. Yeah. The rules are slightly, like, the language around the laws are slightly different in every state, but the basic premise is the same following the Royal commission, uh, into institutional abuse. Uh, there, the law, there were laws instated in, in each state, except I think for Western Australia, which might not have any around this that said that, uh, if you were a priest or a scout leader or somebody in a, in a, I guess a position of power or an organization, you know, an institution, then, if you were convicted, so what the, the whole campaign is about convicted people and convicted pedophiles. We're not we're not talking pre-conviction, we're talking about when you have been convicted of a crime. We're talking of people here who have been proven by the courts to be guilty. And I think that's a real important distinction. But mm. um we're, we're not out there trying to assassinate people's character. And um, but if you're a priest or a school teacher and you commit a sexual offense against a child and you are convicted, then you can't trot out a character reference that says, oh, but, you know, Joe Smith, he, he's a really good guy and he does all his community work and he, he shouldn't, his sentence should be reduced and it shouldn't be as harsh because, because look at his good character. You, you can't use that because uh, it, the Royal Commission recommended this and it was found that, that really those people, you know, if you're a priest, you have automatic good standing in the community. 
you know, the, the organization actually gives you that standing. It's not even you. It's not even you as a person who has to achieve that. Um, although, you know, priests, school teachers, they all use charm and, and you know, uh, their offense is hidden behind a smile. It's not, you know, it's not normally overt. Uh, they, and they groom, they groom children and the people around them. But the, the reality is that what that's created is a, an uneven system. It's an uneven system for perpetrators. Like as a perpetrator, um, half the perpetrators can't use it. Well, not, uh, you know, I shouldn't say half, but I'm going to use a, a bunch of perpetrators can't use a character reference and a bunch of perpetrators can, because my neighbor, had he been convicted, he would have been able to have character references read out. So I would have had to sit in court while he presented character references saying, you know, character references are normally good. You, you don't share a bad one. So presenting character reference saying, here's this guy, he's just been convicted of child sexual offenses against you, but you can sit here and listen while his friends or his family or his boss says why he's such a good guy and why his service to the community in, in some other way uh, means that he should have a lesser sentence, a lesser punishment for what he's done to you. So there's, um, that's not actually really fair on the priests or the scout leaders, and I'm, I'm not advocating for them, but in terms of law, it's bad law. It's a double standard on one side, but it's it's also a very, you know, and a much more horrific double standard on, on the victim side. Mm. Because, uh, if, like, I can just imagine, um, Jared, and I just have this in my head, it's just, because, I mean, I, I've got sentencing remarks from my my own case, which was very triggering for me. Like, I found it extremely upsetting because um, of the, the, the positive statements about my uncle that, I, you know, uh, it, it makes you feel guilty for making the complaint. And as a victim survivor, I'm thinking about how all of these people's experiences become really belittled and... Um, you know, undermined or it somehow justifies the perpetrator's right to commit offences against you by, um, you know, just being a good, well, they're a good person and then I feel bad because I'm like, oh, well, I shouldn't have said anything. So I, I can see how um, destructive and damaging this must be for the general victim-survivor population. I know just reading about my stuff was enough, let alone sitting in a courtroom. So Absolutely. And that's that's the injustice. The court system already, it doesn't really support survivors. No. Like I said, I, I, I had very little preparation besides them telling me that it was going to be difficult for what was going to happen in that courtroom when I went in. And in some ways, looking back at it, I didn't even know about this stuff then, you know, but in some ways it was a relief to know that I didn't have to sit through hearing a lot of good stuff said about him. I mean, obviously I would have liked him to be convicted, but I can't imagine what it would have been like to then endure that afterwards. And I wouldn't have been, I wasn't warned that, that was a possibility. No one, no one told me that might be the case. And I'm absolutely sure it would have, you know, caused me a huge amount of trauma. And so it's, it's bad law. It's unequal law. And it's also really, really unfair that now you know, you or I who were abused by a person known to us who wasn't in a position of sta good standing in the community would have to endure that, 
endure that and you did and i like i my heart goes out to you in that um and so many other survivors do on a day-to-day -day basis in the courtroom and, and what we're talking about here is the 0.3 percent of cases that get a conviction so it's it it's just such a minimal amount of cases even get to court and then even less of those uh have a conviction and then to sit sit and hear those remarks read out um so i think we see this in its own right as a justice issue but also we see it as part of um a whole bunch of work that different survivors are doing around the legal system to try and change the legal system to be one that supports survivors instead of perpetrators and you know i don't think we're we're asking for justice we're not asking for the tables to be tipped in our favor but at the moment the tables are the odds are stacked against us as it is and then the system yeah. doesn't it it just causes more trauma 100 <laughs> um and so we don't really see it as a big ask to be honest it's 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 a no-brainer to even that platform and the reality is that the crux of it is that grooming grooming is an offense right and so when you and offenders use their character whether they're a priest or your neighbor they use mm -hmm. what good character they have the trust of the people around them that they've built through grooming yeah to, I'm so glad you said that, yeah. And so essentially what happens when when you sit in a courtroom and someone reads out the good character of your perpetrator, they're describing the grooming process, you know, and grooming yeah. is an offence in its own right. And yet somehow when they've been convicted of an offence, the grooming, the good character, which they're using to cover up their true nature, is uh something that contributes to a lesser sentence you know and so it doesn't make sense to me it's just not fair <laughs> you know and I, i'm not people have people have asked us this question before we're not saying that someone convicted of a white collar crime shouldn't be able to use a character reference you know we're, we're, we're very specifically talking about child sexual abuse because the character is implicit in the offense and part of the offense and it can't be separated so you know that i'm sure there's crimes where people can argue that that crime is out of character and a character reference can be supported but when we're talking about the nature of what's going on here that interpersonal space and the way things are concealed and the way people are manipulated that character is the grooming and you can't you can't separate those two it's so uh, i i really feel really passionate about what you're saying i it almost makes me angry because i i can see it and so many victim survivors <laughs> yeah, i can see that you're very passionate about it yeah um but yeah just just having you're right because that grooming is so prolific um and it's targeted and people forget that they're just like, oh no, it just happened. Well, it doesn't just happen. Doesn't just happen. The groomer has to target and, um, you know, 
make a plan around this offending to cover it up and to continue this offending in a way that is, is exactly what you're describing, um, you know, and, and using their good character and their standing in the community to make it seem like nothing's happening. Like I just, and, yeah. I, and I know it's obviously through my 16 years as a police officer, there's there's not much I haven't seen and also working now with um, uh, the Alex lab uh, and, and digging really deep into online abusing and how people groom online. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's still, you know, the contact offending is still so prolific and it's that grooming is so strong and it can happen within minutes or it can happen over a really long period of time, but it is always targeted. Yeah. It's always targeted. So you're so right in the fact that those two things can't be separated. So and it's it's not yeah. just the child who's groomed, you know. It's no, it's no. the it's the people around them. My mother had to trust my perpetrator. In fact, yeah, I didn't have to. In some ways, you know, like I I could rely on her trust, and that's not leveling anything at my mother. It, you know, it's the case for anyone who's left their child in the care of somebody. They they trusted them. Yeah. And, I had a friend who messaged me um, after I shared about uh, the Paul Frost, um, the swimming coach recently was convicted in New South Wales. I might be getting his name wrong. I'm not great with names. I try to forget the ones with pedophiles. But um, her, he, he was convicted and sentenced for 32 years, which is incredible. Um, but that was for 43 offences against 11 children. So, you know, wow. like less than three years per child. <laughs> and less than one year per offence. So when you put it that way, 32 years doesn't seem that long, but for a child, sexual abuse uh, sentence is pretty large. But um, there's, there's two things from that case. So one, uh, John Fink, who's part owner of a, a chain of, like not chain, but a number of very big, you know, including my favorite restaurant in Sydney, been along at the Opera House, um, which I haven't eaten at and I, and I never will now. Um, Key, Fire Door in Surrey Hills, which is my favourite restaurant, which until he doesn't own it, I won't go back to um, because I can't. He wrote this man, this pedophile, who'd been convicted, a character reference calling him a champion of children. Well, wow. On the flip side of that, one of my friends, you know, texted me and said, that man was my son's teacher at school. And I would go to him for... I was a single parent. I would go to him for advice, for support. Uh, he helped. He helped my son. He actually helped it with a diagnosis. And I look at that now and I think, what was his interest? Yeah. You know, and um, the son was the right age, you know, and. Um, it, what a betrayal though. Like that's that's grooming right there. You know, yeah. and they were both groomed, both. Yeah. Groomed. And, and, and then you've got this, this guy, this, you know, this other upstanding community member calling him a champion of young people. I mean, my gosh, so blind, so blind. And um, yeah, if, if you are seeing this in Sydney, you know, find out the restaurants that John Fink's group have holdings in and don't go there. I think that's one way you can put on your feet, you know, talk with your feet. Love it. Yeah. Man. It makes me so angry because I just, 
there's nothing good about someone who continues to offend against children. It's just as simple as that, you know, and and I believe every moment that you're going to go and offend against someone, you have a choice at that point in time. Like, am I going to do this or not? I know it's not right, but you know, I can't help myself. You know, it just pisses me off. (laughs) I just get so frustrated because, you know, it's so prolific. There's, I don't know. I don't want to start getting so, yeah, but I, I, I share um, with detectives all the time. It's uh, it's survivors' perspectives for detectives, I call it. And I share parts of my sentencing remarks with them. And it's to me, there's things like early pleas of guilty uh, to reduce sentencing in terms of child any offences, but particularly child sex. I don't care if you've done it, you've done it, right? If you're going to plead guilty early, well, you know, great that you've saved the court's time, but you shouldn't be getting a reduced sentence because you've decided that you can't afford the long drawn out process. So, Hey, you know, it doesn't make you a better person because you plead guilty early. You've still committed the crime, you know? So all these things I've been reading through uh, and, you know, it's been that like, this was in the year 2000, it's been that many years and I, I still haven't fully gone through it and acknowledged the remarks but it is so destructive and every single time i read it i get so angry because i'm like how can it possibly be that they can say all these things and him have this reduced sentence because of it because you've got a family you get off early you get off you get off I mean, you've got children you've got children all right so you can go home to it i do not it just doesn't make sense to me so um, I think this is, you've started at a great place and I hope there's more that can come from this in terms of um, holding perpetrators fully accountable for their crimes. Yeah, um, so do we. Yeah. yeah. I know you're in Queensland and we haven't we haven't got there yet, but that the goal is national, you know, and with the attorneys general do meet in a federal cabinet, a federal, you know, meeting of attorneys general and um, Shane Rattenbury from the ACT has you know, it, I don't think it's on the agenda for the next meeting, but he's keen to have that on the agenda. So, um, you know, we're hoping that maybe the fight for the other states isn't going to have to be one by one. You know, like we, we're we ready to pick a state off one by one by one. Um, you know, and we've, we've, we've launched in New South Wales, we've launched in the ACT. Um, and I, I, you know, we're trying to work out where we'd go next. Uh, Queensland, I'm here. <laughs> and... It, it may well be. We've already had started having conversations with Northern Territory as well, but um, you know, hopefully there's a hopefully we we hop, skip, and jump over that because if the attorneys general can get on the same page at a federal level, then they may all choose to implement these changes. I mean, that would be yeah. a great victory. Uh, yeah, because as I've said, it's, so- it's not a big ask. No, I don't feel like it should be a big ask. I think justice uh, is not in the favour of the victim at all. Um, And I really, really hope that the courts... uh, Look, I I know things are getting better, but I feel like... I mean, I'm 42 myself, right? And I'm like, how long is this shit going to take? Like, you're you're saying yourself, it's it's not a big ask. And I don't think it is a big ask. I really don't. And so it bothers me, um, particularly now that I'm doing research work and I'm looking at the research going, hang on a minute, all this stuff has already been found out. Like, why hasn't this changed already? So, I, 
I get really angry. <laughs> like I spend my days like reading, like, what the fuck? Like, what's going on with this? Like, why is this not changed? Yeah. Um, so you know, it, it's it is slow, but I, I'd like to think that we are getting better and the courts are getting better and processes are more victim-centric and survivor informed. Um, so there is hope, even though you know it is it is difficult. Um, but Jared and and for Harry, I know he's listening. Um, thank you for your pursuit for survivors on behalf of all survivors, what you're doing. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people get behind you. And when you come to Queensland, I'm right here. Yeah. Happy to fight with you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But how can people uh, get behind the campaign or find out more about it? What What can they do to follow you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're pretty grassroots. <laughs> Um, like I said, it started in the pub and really it's just Harry and I, we don't, we're not an organization. We're two guys, um, who have jobs to support ourselves. Um, and to be honest, we don't even, we don't even have a webpage. We were talking about this earlier. The, so the best way you can, the best way you can follow along is to follow me. And my name's right in, in front of you there on the screen on Instagram or to follow Harrison James on Instagram. And if you look up your reference ain't relevant, uh, you'll, you'll come across this pretty easily. And, um, and that's, that's the best way to stay abreast of everything. We, we, we do our, most of our, um, sort of information letting there. Um, and we, I guess, have talked about some more formal stuff, but, um, TBC yet, to, yet to be developed and yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So best way is Instagram at the moment. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think you guys like you've really hit the nail on the head. And I think for many victims and survivors, you've you've brought something out that I think a lot of us think about but feel completely helpless to do anything about. Like the, the whole, like you, you've spoken about it tonight, the whole complicity, complicitness, um, the grooming stuff, and it being used as a public-facing, mm. um, you know, whole system that sits around an offender, particularly during the justice process. And it's so unfair that most of us just can't and don't have the courage to go back there when we feel like we've, that justice hasn't been served, if that makes sense. And so I think you're really bringing something out that many of us wanted to have a voice about, but have been too afraid to, um, you know, have the conversation or not really known how to make the changes. I mean, it must be exhausting um, to have your own story and then, you know, be advocating in this space because, you know, I'm pretty tough, but again, I, I even reached out to my community tonight and said, look, I'm not sure how this is going to go, what we're going to talk about, but I know this is really difficult for me because of how I feel about the sentencing remarks, you know. Um, and so I, I do think that it is something really brave, um, and I just want to encourage you guys to keep going and, again, to thank you for your work. Um, but, yeah, please don't stop. There's, there's lots of things that I would love to help change in, in terms of the legislation around um you know the grooming stuff and and uh how perpetrators present themselves to court um yeah. I, I do not think it's fair at all no, no, and no, i haven't no. been able to say that previously because of my employment i can say it now it's not okay the justice system needs a lot of work <laughs> yeah and it does and look kelly i have so much admiration for you um that you would come on when 
you know, I, I understand that, like, obviously you're passionate about it, but when what we're doing is so personal and so closely connected to you and triggering for you in terms of your own story with those character friends. So, so I, I have so much admiration for you and what you're doing and, you know, the way you take on survivors stories with these podcasts and, and you shed a light, you know, you, you're doing a great thing. So I want to, I want to fire that encouragement back at you and say, Thank don't you. stop. And I'm glad that, you know, I think you've done, you've done, you've just demonstrated there what we all need to be doing as survivors and what I think um, Harry and I are learning more and more. We've, we've got each other for support. We've got support. Um, but, you know, I certainly didn't quite grasp and I probably should have, I was probably not deliberately naive, but didn't quite grasp how heavy it would be and how exhausted I am at this point in the year, um, carrying the weight of every day facing my trauma because every day, at least in some sector, it's not just when a new story comes out now, because Half the time we're having a conversation about that news story. So um, it's it's every day. It's, it's not something that I put down like I used to. And yeah. I've got the resilience and I've got the strength that I've developed over years to do that. But I also, I've got the help and I need the help. And so I love I loved hearing you say that before you did, you know, that's you, that's a step better than I would do. Because I would I would know I've got people and then do the, do the podcast and then be like, oh, shit, I need to talk to somebody. Whereas, yeah. Like, I love that you, you know, and you've actually set yourself up beforehand, which is great. I have so much admiration for that because I think as survivors so often, we're just left to fend for ourselves as well. Um, you know, and I, I've got great support and people often do ask me how I'm, how I'm going, you know, and actually today I, um, I didn't play Wordle. Now this sounds really strange, but I've got two mates who I play Wordle with every day. Um, yeah every morning and we've done it since COVID and it's a good way for us to stay connected. Really. We have a little conversation. We play the game every day and it's really, it's really nice. Um, but this morning I got up and I'd slept in a little bit and then I had a really hectic day and I haven't really been active on Instagram in my lunch break or anything like that. And so I finished work and I had texts from, from these guys saying, Hey, what's going on? We haven't heard from you. And when I was on the phone earlier, I, I had missed calls and um, it's, you know, that kind of support that survivors need and they're aware of what I'm doing um, and perhaps more aware than me in some ways of what, of how that might be affecting me because um, it was really beautiful to see that. And that if they're watching this, they know who they are. And I really appreciate that. Um, but, you know, I think you'd, you're doing a good thing there as well and looking out for yourself. And I know you've got that, network of women you talked talked about and i saw your two supporters who um yes. helped you out with the podcast and thank you to those two um because you know kelly can't do this on her own and i think you probably recognize that so yeah i couldn't have said it better myself jared um this podcast isn't possible without the two girls that sit in uh help run the live show so um there's been various helpers along the way um but the, these two girls keep showing up religiously every fortnight to help so we can concentrate in the conversation because it's really hard to talk about this in-depth stuff without um you know having to do all the technical stuff as well so um they're an absolute godsend and we have a little bit of a debriefing afterwards if we need to 
Uh, most of the time I try to crack a few shitty dad jokes throughout my podcast just to keep it light. <laughs> uh, but sometimes it is hard and sometimes I just don't know how things are going to uh, yeah. fall for myself or my guests, you know. And um, But, I, I mean, Jared, I, I know that I'm going to get beautiful messages from people from what you shared tonight so courageously. Um, and I just I, I, I can't wait to connect further and to, you know, join the journey with you guys some, somehow. Yeah, you're on, um, a, you're on the journey with us already. That's it. That's it, mate. We, we're all going to stand alongside each other. So, um, and, you know, uh, and I want to say this too uh, for survivors, it's not someone standing behind you and it's not someone standing in front of you. It's people that you need in your life that stand beside you, mm-hmm. that walk with you because they're not, you know, trying to tell you what to do because you really have to make your own path in your healing, but you do need them to walk alongside you every now and then and just you know, um, support you on your journey. So um, to the women, I don't have a men's group yet, but maybe I'll talk to the gents here and they might help me get one started. But um, I've definitely got a women's support group. So if you're out there and you're listening and you need a safe space, please jump on board with that. Um, I do have an ebook. If um, so let me quickly grab the QR code for you guys. Uh, so if you would like to download it you can scan the qr code on your screen there's a free ebook there for victim survivors with eight cycle breaking strategies um for those of you who have experienced child sexual abuse this is in the lead up to my course which hopefully will get done by christmas and early next year um it will be out there for you guys to do um because I know there's just no support for adult survivors out there, really. It's really difficult. So yeah. um, I'm creating a course. So please um, download the book, uh, jump on, join uh, the mailing list at kellyhumphreys.com so you can uh, stay in tune with what's going on. Jared, um, thank you again for joining us tonight. Is there any last-minute comments you want to make um, to our listeners or um, advice but- that you'd like to give? Oh, um- I mean, uh, yeah, my pleasure. I'm, I'm really pleased to have been here and to help out. I, I will say, if you are a male survivor watching this, um, the best place I can rec- recommend that you go is to the Samson w- website, S-A-M-S-N, Survivors and Mates Support Network. Uh, that's the organization I work on the peer support line for um, and, you know, do the odd uh, conference like I did on Saturday. Um, that is a survivor-led organization. It was started by a survivor with a, a, off the back of his compensation. So, you know, uh, doing what the government should be doing um, and does have government funding now as well. But, um, and he, you know, Craig, who started that is a great man and a person very dear to my heart. As uh, another one of our, my coworkers said on Saturday, a great Australian and I really believe that. So, um, you know, for men, jump on board with Samson um, and they're a great organization, but yeah, otherwise um, I don't know that I've got any great pearls to drop out except to, <laughs> to share your story. Um, and it doesn't, like I said at the beginning, sharing your story, you know, might, might be interpreted by somebody doing what Kelly and I are doing as do what we're doing, but that's not what we're saying. Um, if you haven't spoken to somebody male or female, find someone, who you trust and and please please share and i i guarantee you it's going to be the hardest thing you'll ever do but the benefits of it will be the best thing you ever do you know yeah. and you can't do this on your own and you can't suppress it forever so 
I guess that's I'll leave I'll leave it on that that note. Yeah, well, it's got to come out somewhere, guys. So we can um, get Jared back and Harry back at some point um, and have more of a conversation because Jared, that was just amazing. So thank you so much, um, guys. In a fortnight's time, I'm going to have a special episode. Um, I don't have a title for it yet, but it's going to be around holidays and um, being a survivor through holidays because it's often a really difficult time. So we're going to talk to you about some strategies about how to kind of handle the family situations because we know that sometimes um, we're forced to be in the same space as people who've perpetrated against us um, and it can be a difficult time. So um, please join us in a fortnight for a really special panel um, that I'm putting together for Christmas, then we're going to have a break and we're back in the new year. So, guys, thank you again for being part of the audience. Appreciate your support. Um, Jared, thank you. And, guys, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Kelly. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for being part of Off the Cuff with Kel. Breaking cycles of abuse and trauma is not something that can be done alone and requires all of us working together. Your support makes a huge difference. If you've found the content of this podcast valuable, you can support my work through my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Kelly Humphreys. You can also find me on all major social media platforms. Through my website, kellyhumphreys.com, you can contact me for speaking in workshops as well as purchase my first book, Unscathed Beauty. If you found any of the content today distressing, please reach out to appropriate support agencies in your country. For emergencies, contact your local law enforcement agency.